0: the gospel is not man-made. It's not something that's made up. I didn't consult other people when I got the gospel. I received the good news of Jesus directly from Jesus. And then he's also saying, and when men begin to preach the gospel, if they're not careful, uh, they will pervert it. They will undermine it. They will begin to preach something that is really not even good news at all. They'll begin to talk. Instead of talking about the good news that Jesus came, that he died, that he was buried, and that he was raised again uh, in, in our place to bring us close to God, instead of a message like that, what you will begin to hear is a perversion of that. Yes, Jesus came, but you need to give him a little help. You need to help him by being a good person. You need to help him by keeping the law. You need to help him by being a rule keeper. And what Paul points out is, look, that's not even a gospel. That's not even good news. Everybody says those things. People all over the world say those things. But Jesus came to do and bring something new, something unique. And then he kind of crescendos that argument with this amazing verse, Galatians 2.20. And I wanted to get inside of us today. I want to say it again. Uh, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. These are meant to be words that are to form and shape our identities, who we are. These are meant to be words that form the cornerstone of our very lives that we lean into when things are hard and from which we derive our identities and our wholeness. Okay? So, uh, but but here's the reality. What we're going to talk about today is that oftentimes... Uh, we live differently than this. We run to other things to find life. We run to other things to justify our lives. Now, I want to be clear out of the gate. We're going to go back and forth between Galatians 2.20, just this one verse, which Paul penned, and a book, the thoughts of a book. So several months ago, while I was preparing our Galatians study, I was reading a book, and the book was called Seculosity. Uh, It's by David Zoll, and uh, the tagline is um, particularly instructive. Here was his tagline, How Career, Parenting, Technology, Food, Politics, and Romance became our new religion and what to do about it now um, here's david's contention in the book seculosity he says you know we may be sleeping in on sunday mornings in greater numbers but we've never been more religious he he would argue that religious observant hasn't as much faded as it has migrated because you can't squelch this impulse in people, right? In other words, he would say that even though people, churches are closing their doors in greater and greater numbers, people in our culture are almost always in church. Because they're trying to find and write a justifying story for their lives. David contends not Paul in Galatians 2 but David in his book Seculosity contends that a person's religion is whatever they look to in order to give themselves life. It is what you lean on to tell yourself that you are okay and that your life matters it is all, your religion is all of the ladders that you spend yourself climbing toward a dream of wholeness your religion is whatever you lean into as the validating and justifying story of your one and only life and what and what david uh, Tells us. In other words, it is what you look to to provide you meaning, to provide you hope, and what the author calls your enoughness. Now, that's kind of an odd phrase, so I want to talk about your and my, what the things that we look to to demonstrate our enoughness. And you, when you have conversations with people, you, you see this, right? In other words, when you have conversations with people, we're all kind of scrambling to become successful enough, happy enough, thin enough, wealthy enough, influential enough, desired enough, charitable enough, good enough, or healthy enough. All of these things demonstrate our enoughness. And David contends, the author of this book contends, that if our cultural, current cultural climate tells us anything, it's that the needs that were addressed in the old days by capital R religion, uh, needs like hope, meaning, purpose, and enoughness, he would say these haven't diminished None of these needs have gone away as more churches are becoming tap rooms and theaters. It's just that people are looking in other places for those very same things. And here's what we find. That enough is an illusion. In other words, we never quite get there, we rarely arrive. I mean, no matter how much we accumulate, no matter how much we achieve, we never quite arrive at enough. And every one of us in the room wants to feel, uh, you know, we need to have a justifying, a validating story for our lives. What I'm telling you is that every one of us in the room desperately seeks justification and validation and we're going to uh, places that we traditionally have not gone to in contemporary culture to find them. So for example, some of us believe on a level that we can barely admit to ourselves that maybe if we had enough likes or friends on Facebook then we would finally be able to like or love ourselves. Or that if we had enough followers on Instagram, that that would prove or demonstrate that that I am actually worth following. See, See, all of us look to others to validate and justify our lives, but what if there was a better way? What if someone already has? So uh, I want to challenge every single one of us. We're going to go back to that verse, Galatians 2.20. I'd like to see that on the screen again. When you came in today, you were given a little card. And uh, I love this because this will fit in your pocket. It'll fit in a Pocket book. It'll fit in a purse or a wallet. And you're going to notice there are two sides to this card. One side has the ESV version. That's the English Standard Version. That's the version that's behind me. And then the other side has the New Living Translation. So I just want to invite you to look at both sides, pick the the version that most speaks to you, and then we're going to ask everyone in the church to actually commit this verse to memory and we're asking you to consider doing that maybe some of you are here and you've never memorized a verse of scripture this is an awesome opportunity for you to begin to hide God's word in your heart because if you will hide this verse in your heart our hope is that you will begin to find your life here not in the other things that we're going to unveil in just A few moments, okay? So um, yeah, because again, whether we can quote this verse or not, it's meant not only to be memorized, but it's meant to be a daily part of our lives. And the reality is, folks, often we think that, well, you know, I just, I'm asking for too much. I desire too much. The problem is not that you desire too much. The problem is that you desire too little, and you go to the wrong places to fulfill those desires, So let's talk about what some of those places are that people have gone to in modern culture that serve as a small R religion. The first one is performance or busyness. Performance or busyness. So this one's easy. Uh, So in other words, our identities get wrapped up in our performance. Uh, If I do well, I'm worthwhile. If I don't do well, I'm worthless right? If I'm good at this, then I'm okay. If I'm not good at that, then I'm not okay. So our identity gets all wrapped up in our performance in ways that are unhealthy. Now let me say first of all that it is healthy To want to perform, to do things better, to excel. That's healthy. It's healthy to want to be productive day in and day out. That's awesome. But I'm also saying that when being productive gets tied up in who you are, when being busy gets tied up as a demonstration of your worth, those things begin to become toxic. Because you were never designed or meant to lean into that to determine your worth or your value, see? And have you ever noticed, I mean this comes up in conversation all the time, have you ever noticed how often you, you approach somebody and you say, hey, how are you? What do all of us say? Oh, I am so busy, I've got so much going on, right? I mean, listen, you never approach anybody. You never have anybody go when you, when you approach them that they, and you go, hey, how are you doing? Oh man, I'm just doing nothing and loving it. Like, like I am so bored every day. I'm like sleeping in every day. I got up today and I have not done a thing. I haven't even brushed my teeth, right, since I got up this morning, right? I mean, we never say that. Why? Because we look to validate ourselves the justifying story for our lives is, hey, the world could not survive without me. Like, it needs my input, and if I'm not continually busy, and and here's the other thing about busyness, it has the dual purpose. Not only does it keep our minds occupied off off of the things that aren't going well in our lives, but it serves the dual purpose of affirming you know my importance and my identity and I'm not saying any of this is conscious in fact I'm saying it's subconscious that you are subconsciously uh, feeding that identity out of your performance or your busyness and sometimes we bring this into the church I have a quiet time every day I'm in God's word every day God must love me God must approve of me if I'm not then you know my then maybe I'm not as important or valuable to God, right? But make no mistake about it, we're deriving our identity from performance or busyness. Um, So take Christmas cards, for example. Uh, There's a social researcher, North Carolina social researcher, Ann Burkett, has spent years five decades to be exact, analyzing the kind of Christmas letters that we write here in America. And among the five decades of letters in her archives, uh, here's here's the observation that she made. She made the observation that for about the first 30 years that people were writing Christmas cards, they would almost always focus on gratitude. Gratitude for a Savior, gratitude for what they have, gratitude for their kids, just gratitude. But in the last two decades, she's noticed a not so subtle shift in the tenor of these Christmas letters. People don't write about gratitude at Christmas time anymore. Do you know what they write about? How busy they are, how jam packed their lives are. Um, so for example, um, here's a woman, here's, she cites one letter that kind of summarizes her work. So here's a Christmas letter that was sent two Christmases ago. I'm not sure writing a Christmas letter is a good idea when I'm moving at the speed of light, but given the amount of time I have to spend on any single project, it seems the most productive use of my time. We start every day at 4:45 a.m. We launch ourselves through the day at breakneck speed only to land in a crumpled heap by 8.30 at night wondering how we made it through the day. Now, maybe yours aren't that um, bold or dramatic but how many of you have gotten Christmas letters recently from people where they just talk about all that they did the last year, you know, and and how their kids are doing and all the things their kids are involved in. See, we love to appeal to busyness as a justification or a validation for our lives. All of us do this. And what I need us to see this morning is that busyness is not only a response to my circumstances in other words a lot of us think me included sometimes that well I'm just busy because I have to be and I get that we all have homes and we all have kids and we all have jobs and we have all these things that we have to keep all these irons we have to keep in the fire I get it that's true I'm not denying that but here's what I am saying busyness is not so much an obligation as it is a compulsion See, some of us stay busy to avoid less pleasant realities in our life and again to validate that we are worthwhile See, it's just busyness as validation so i want to show you share with you some stories about this These come right out of the book seculosity okay all these stories do so i don't know if you've heard of billy mitchell or not But um, Billy Mitchell, you may remember him, about 10 years ago, a documentary came out about Billy Mitchell called King of Kong. King of Kong. It kind of shone the spotlight on um, his role as the world's best, and if you're a millennial, you're not going to have ever heard of this game, as the world's best Donkey Kong uh, champion. So, yeah, that's like 80s. That's like uh, classic-like games. So uh, Billy Mitchell became the best uh, Donkey Kong champion, I guess that's the way you would say it, in the whole world. So this guy is a legend in the classic gaming community, right? And so at the beginning of this documentary, Billy wastes no time in explaining to the camera, he says, there's a level of difference between people and it translates into games. And then he says, Since I debuted on the scene in 1982, there hasn't been anyone who's been able to play even close to me. And then the filmmakers survey a group of his competitors and they're like, Oh, dude, I mean, he's like the best. He's like the best Donkey Kong player in the world. There's nobody else even close. At one point, they interview his dad. And you know what his dad says? His dad says, My Billy is a winner. He's a winner because he's the best, you know, he didn't say this part, but because he's the best like Donkey Kong player, you know, in the world. So in the eyes of his peers, right, in the eyes of his family, in the eyes of, let's face it, Billy himself, Billy has, his success has become synonymous with a video game score, his entire identity flows out of his prowess, his ability to play one video game that's 35 years old. But listen before you judge Billy too harshly, you and I, we do the same thing. When we begin to blend, right our uh, our identity with our performance and so as this film goes on uh, what you begin to realize is there's this new guy on the scene who's at least as good of a Donkey Kong player as Billy Mitchell is. And so the whole, the whole documentary is about all the shenanigans and the hijinks and all the cheating and all the manipulating and coercing that goes on so that Billy can be recognized as the one at the top of the King of Kong game, Right? And so as the film goes on, we realize that the, that the perch at the top of the ladder, even a ladder as quaint as the little ones that adorn a Donkey Kong game, right? is not as magnificent as it looks. And so you know what it does? It starts to just show all this performances and like coming out and what people, the lengths that they will go to to protect their perch. And make no mistake about it, friends, when you, when you move to performancism or busyness as a measure of your worth, it turns life, listen to me, it turns life into a competition. It turns life into a competition to be won, or a problem to be solved as opposed to a series of moments to be experienced or an adventure to be relished. And you and, and I want to show you a picture of what I think the new American Bible is for people that have gravitated to performancism or busyness. I think that there are many of us in this room, and all of our identity and all, all of our worth comes from how many of these we get checked off every day. And you know what's beautiful about a to-do list? I get to control that. I get to say what I have to do today, right? I don't have to rely on a God to tell me. I don't have to surrender to a God. I get to own that list. See? And I get to be validated by that list as I just check it off. So that's one. There's, there's um, one. Uh, let's talk about social media for a minute. I think social media elevates this to a whole new level. Some of you may remember the well-publicized story of Asina O'Neill. Uh, she was an Australian model who in 2015 bailed on over half a million Instagram followers. She'd spent three years amassing that kind of following. And along with that kind of following, she generated wealth and fame at a level that few of us could ever imagine and yet at the height of her influence at the height of her popularity she said this, I have a dream life so why do I still feel so lost and lonely and depressed and then one day Asina O'Neill posted a photo on Instagram it was a casual looking selfie And next to this, uh, what appeared to be a casual-looking selfie, she wrote these words. She said this, please like this photo. I put on makeup, I curled my hair, I squeezed into this tight dress, I put on this big uncomfortable jewelry, I took over 50 shots until I got the one I thought you might like. And then I spent ages editing it on several uh, apps just so I could feel some social approval from you. And then in big caps, she wrote this, There is nothing real about this hashtag celebrity construct and that was the last time she ever ever used her account in that way on Instagram she just left the whole thing now mercifully most of us in this room we're not going to reach her level of exposure but it doesn't mean that that's not in you and in me See, we don't get off the hook just because we don't have half a million followers on Instagram, right? All of us look for a justifying, a validating story for our lives. And when we don't find it, it leads us to despair every single time. In fact, listen, if if you're going to dial out, don't dial out the next two or three minutes. I want to tell you a story, and it's a story that's going to speak to you. So, listen, when we get disengaged, when when we don't feel that we're writing a story that validates or justifies our lives, we give in to despair. Um, But when we see, uh, like, grace, we don't forget it. So in her memoir, Cherry, Mary Carr, a woman by the name of Mary Carr uh, wrote this. She said, uh, she talks about an instance when she was 14 years old. She said that while her parents were away out of the house... She was miserable and she tried to do herself in. She tried to commit suicide by swallowing a handful of pills, but she didn't take enough. And so she just got sick. So when her parents came home, all they saw was that she was sick. And so they decided they were going to try to, you know, get some food in her and nurse her back to health right they just attributed it to vomiting or food poisoning so but after a while as the evening wore on and and Mary's father saw how utterly sick she was again they didn't know that she had tried to commit suicide right he asked if there was any food that she could stomach and all she thought was that maybe she could eat a plum but plums were out of season so she went to bed the next morning her father came into the room with a bushel of plums having driven all night from Texas to Arkansas to get them for her. And Mary remembers this and here's what she writes. She says, "It's when you sink your teeth into the plum that you make a promise. The skin is still warm on that plum from riding in the sun in Daddy's truck and the nectar runs down your chin and you snap out of it or you are snapped out of it never again will you lay a hand against yourself not so long as there are plums to eat and somebody anybody who gives enough of a damn to haul them to you that's how you survive what the coming years will demand. And then here's what she writes. It's so important that we get this. You don't earn it. It's just given to you. It's just given to you. Friends, we serve a Savior who didn't just drive from Texas to Arkansas to put some plums in a basket for us. We have a Savior that moved heaven and hell for you. We have a Savior that went to hell and back for you. Listen, why should you for one more moment clamor For the justification and the approval and all the things, this validating story. When you have a Savior who has already validated your story, who has already justified your existence, who has already said to you, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And that will never fail. The truth is, friends, that you don't need to get the world to love you because there is one who loves you unconditionally. And he always has. Why would you veer from that into into the lure of a lesser loyalty? So there's the performance piece, but there's one more place. Oh, so here's what I want to do. I want to show you, so this is not Scripture. This is the R.S.P. R.S.D.P. stands for the Revised Substandard Perversion. And some of us live by this version, even though it's a, a perversion. So performance... Here's what we say. I am my performance. It is no longer I who live, but my performance lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in my performance. Giving it my whole life, giving it my all, hoping that others will love me. That's the version that many of us live by. But there's something else we have to talk about today, and then a couple more we're going to unpack next week. Here's another place that people run for small r religion in place of what capital R religion used to provide. Oh, and by the way, it's all the effort without any of the mercy. And it's this it's romance. Romance. Back in the 70s, in his uh, just as upbeat title as you would imagine, a book called The Denial of Death, Ernest Becker predicted, this is in the 70s folks, predicted the explosion of the wedding industry. Uh, He said that would be the result of what he called apocalyptic romance. His claim was that to fulfill the void left by capital R religion, as even then people were beginning to migrate out of and away from churches, that people would turn first and foremost to romance as a new kind of religion. And here's what he said. He said this, the love partner becomes the divine ideal within which to fulfill one's life. All spiritual and moral needs will become focused on the other individual. But here's the problem with this, and you probably already know this. You cannot get close to someone who is using you to prop up their their enoughness. Right? In other words, we get married and we hope that our mate, whether it be a he or a she, will be the validating and the justifying story for our lives we pin all our hopes on that relationship that union Um, and listen let me just say this when two people enter into a marriage relying on the other person in that marriage to make them whole oh, friends right there is going to be so much need in that marriage that they're going to swallow each other whole. That's what's always going to happen in that kind of marriage. Now, I want to dial this in even a little bit more. There's kind of a myth that circulates out there as we've uh, drifted into romance as a religion. And here's the myth. Somewhere out there is my, what? Soulmate. Listen, listen. The word "soul" isn't used by accident. This is a religious pursuit. Yes, yeah, somewhere out there is my soulmate, uh, and this has been um, this has been definite. Deafening, <laughs> this has really been hard on um, on relationships. You know why? Because when you're in a relationship and that re- relationship is struggling. Or you're in a relationship, and your you know your your needs you, they're not validating you, they're not justifying you, but you need them to. Uh, oh man, fireworks fly, folks. They just fly, they do. Uh, this is a recipe for disaster. And here's what this looks like. So, here's how, it, when we run to romance, I'm going to go back to the soulmate myth in a minute, but I want you to see the revised, some standard perversion on this one. Here's how this one looks in real life. I have been joined, or, or you might even say, I'm in love with Aaron, depending on whether you're a guy or a girl, right? I'm in love with Aaron. And so, if you're a guy, like I am, you might say it this way. You would say, it's no longer I who live, but she lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in her, trusting that she will love me and give herself for me. Now, if you're a lady, you might want to substitute a he and a him, right? But nonetheless. This is where we turn, and make no mistake. When we chase after a soulmate, it is as religious a pursuit as anything you've ever done. And we even use we even use language that um, that indicates this, right? Soulmate, yeah, the soulmate myth. Uh, and nowhere do we, do, we, do we see romance cast as salvation more overtly than in the widespread notion that there's one special person out there just for you. The yin to your yang, right? You know, a single person never holds the key, folks, to your personal happiness and ultimate ful- fulfillment. But yet Hollywood sells this by the, by, in movies by the thousands. Remember St. Jerry Maguire? he looks into the eyes of his new wife and he's what's he say to her you complete me and everybody goes oh right but listen when you rely on another person to complete you do you know what you're doing you're hoping to marry a savior not a spouse you're looking for a savior You're looking for someone who will justify and validate your story. So, remember the uh, advice columnist Ask Polly? Here's what she, she writes about this in one of her columns. She says this, For years, I turned distracted dudes into demigods using only the powers of my imagination. That was my art, my practice, putting arbitrary guys on a pedestal and then painting a rich and an elaborate backdrop behind them and then praying to that vision, hoping in that vision day after day after day. And as long as he wasn't a real person, he would never ruin my vivid creation. Now, this is small r religion as in romance this is a romantic uh, pursuit and listen what I want to point out to you is that it hasn't always been this way our expectations for romantic relationships have um, really escalated in the last few years and I'm going to prove this to you okay so for most of human history people paired off for mostly pragmatic and economic reasons. In other words, they paired off for land, for peace, for security, for offspring, for survival. It's not that love was never a consideration, it's just that it was one of many other considerations and it wasn't even often the most important one. Experts refer to this as a marriage model of reason, so think Game of Thrones, okay? But as a result of factors that are way too complex for us to talk about here, that model has been supplemented by the model that we live in today. It's been replaced by a new one, the so-called marriage of instinct, in which attraction and sexual fulfillment are the the initial glue. Think the bachelor or the bachelorette, right? Right? So this is kind of the model that we find ourselves in. And so renowned marriage therapist, Esther Perel, here's what she says. Listen, if you've dialed out, please come back in. This is so important. Here's what she says. She says, in this model, we come to one person and we are basically asking them to give us what an entire village used to provide. Give me belonging, give me identity, give me continuity, but also give me transcendence and mystery and all, all in one. Give me comfort, but also give me edge. Give me novelty, but also give me familiarity. Give me predictability, but also give, delight me with surprise. This observation is absolutely rock solid. We put all our hopes, we put all our eggs, so to speak, don't we, in this romance basket and it is a religious pursuit because we try to use romance as the justifying and the validating story for our, for our lives. And the reality is what every single one of us wants to do is we want to marry a savior. We want to... To marry a Savior. And then we show our utter contempt and disgust when that person that we married fails to do that. And the reality is, folks, we're putting something on people that they were never meant to bear. Listen, listen, listen. You know what the gospel says? You already have a Savior. You don't need to marry one. You don't need to become one. You already have a Savior. This is the hope held out for the gospel. There is already someone great and mighty and powerful who has loved you with an everlasting love. You don't have to clamor after the love and the approval of others. You have the approval of the God of the universe in Jesus Christ. This is the hope held out by the gospel. And the gospel is meant to be the thing that we build our lives on and that we live out of so that we become Men and women who say, I have been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. That's the Gospel and that's where you're meant to find your life. So let me pray that for you. Heavenly Father, I pray for us as a church family. I pray, God, that we'd be more sensitive to the way we chase after performance and busyness to validate ourselves for the way that we chase after other men or other women you know, to validate ourselves. And Lord Jesus, that we would recalibrate, that we would rethink the hope held out by the gospel and that that's where we would find our life, our hope, our meaning, our purpose, our forgiveness. Because everything else, Lord Jesus, is just second best. It's just second best. It's you. It's always been you. It's only been you. So we give you great thanks and great praise. And we do it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.